Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. How did an NHS clinic end up prescribing young people potentially dangerous medical treatment with next to no data on the long-term effects? And why did that same clinic not respond to the concerns, not just of outsiders, but its own staff? These are just some of the many questions posed by BBC journalist Hannah Barnes in her new book, Time to Think, which details the rise and fall of the Tavistock and Portman Trust Gender Identity Development Service, commonly known as JIDS. The clinic will shut its doors later this year after a series of damning reports and reviews and an inadequate rating from the Care Quality Commission. The story of how what was once considered a groundbreaking medical service became mired in infamy is a fascinating tale of managerial failure, groupthink and a failure to observe basic clinical practice. It's a story Hannah sets out in painstaking and at times very moving detail in her book. Well, Hannah, thank you very much for being with us on the CapEx podcast. It's great uh, to have you here. Uh, Your new book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children um, is out now. Um, Just for our readers' benefit, many of our listeners will have heard of JIDS, particularly because it's been in the news so much. But what struck me reading the book at first is just how long JIDS has been going. So can we have just a kind of very brief potted history? How did this begin and how did it evolve over time into the service that was eventually deemed inadequate by the Care Quality Commission? Well, it first opened in 1989 at St George's Hospital in South London. It really came out of a single case that its founder, Dr Domenico Dicelli, who's an Italian child and adolescent psychiatrist, uh, a case that he had in the 1980s, which was a young female-born girl who strongly identified as a boy. And he was so moved by this case and the intensity of the feeling and the distress that that young person felt. He thought there had to be a specialist service to work with what he described as a very small, very rare condition that he was seeing in children and young people. And he, he was working in Croydon at the time as a psychiatrist sort of took it upon himself really to try and and see as many young people as he could who had this feeling of distress about gender. And it was very, very few cases. Succeeded in opening a specialist service in 1989. That then moved in 1994 to the Tavistock and Portman Trust in North London, mm-hmm. where it has stayed since. And really throughout the 90s, it remained very small. It was a very small team. Everybody was working part-time, so they did other roles as well. It fluctuated a bit, but essentially you could count the number of referrals on on two hands. And it provided largely 
talking therapies, what you might call now, in a way, a, a safe space for these children and their families. Because one of the examples that features in the book, actually, a young girl at the time called Ellie, she saw uh, Dr. Chaley in the 90s. And really, it wasn't like now. The word trans wasn't in the public lexicon, really. And her family were just like, we'd really like to talk to someone about this. We don't know anyone else who's having this sort of cross-gendered identification. And it was a specialist service. So it was largely talking therapies. It did, at some point in the 90s, provide what we colloquially refer to as puberty blockers. But it had to be from the age of 16, as it was then. And actually, Domenico de Celi co-wrote some guidelines about this in 1998, which sort of set out the rationale for that. And while those physical interventions were available at 16, the wording around it and the approach was very cautious. It was after, you know, prolonged talking therapies and exploration. And really, the name of the service has always been relevant, the Gender Identity Development Service. So the aim was never to try and change a young person's identity at all. It was to try and break down any stigma that they might have felt, to try and help them manage and tolerate any distress they might feel, to provide a space to think. And also, while the intention was never to challenge or change someone's identity, importantly, what the service did acknowledge in those early years was that lots of the young people presenting were very distressed, yes, about their gender, but also they had quite a few other difficulties that they were contending with at the same time. Sometimes the family environment could be quite challenging as well. And what he noticed was that sometimes in those children, if you could help address some of those other problems that were going on at the same time, that might also have an impact on the gender identity and might relieve some of the difficulties surrounding that. So that's how it continued really until the 2000s. And by this point, the only older paediatric gender clinic in the world, which opened in the Netherlands just a couple of years before JIDS, had started providing puberty blockers to a select group of young people at younger ages from the age of 12 at that point. And pressure grew on JIDS for them to do it as well. And there are some really interesting discussions taking place in the 2000s about this. There's, there's some quite sort of significant lobbying from a few support groups. Mm -hmm. But also there is, it's a mistake to think that that is where the pressure came from solely. It was coming from other clinicians working in this field. It came from clinicians working with adult trans people saying, look, we deal with trans adults who would have loved to have had this intervention when they were younger and it would have made their lives much easier. And it was also coming from endocrinologists, so doctors who specialise in hormones. So there was a lot of pressure. Some early data from the Dutch appeared to show that for a select group of young people who had had this gender-related distress from a very early age and it had persisted once they reached puberty and intensified, blocking puberty and then administering hormones once they were older at 16 at that point, it appeared to be of benefit to them. And so what JIDS did... They were very open, actually. And Russell Viner, who led this study that started in 2011, he said that, you know, our concerns didn't go away. Like we were always concerned what impact blocking puberty could have on bones of young people, on brain development and indeed on their gender identity. Because it was thought the hypothesis was that, you know, something about going through puberty and that fluidity in adolescence, they might resolve someone's gender identity problems. That, that was the hypothesis. But they said, look, 
what we need to do, we're scientists, we need to do our own study. And that's what they set out to do in 2011 to see whether they could replicate those results of the Dutch, which appeared to show good outcomes, and add to the evidence base and see whether it did seem to be the case that for a small group of young people, whether blocking puberty earlier could help them. They didn't wait for the results of that study before they rolled early blocking of puberty out as policy, which is quite striking. So in 2014, a matter of weeks or a month before the last participant had actually been enrolled onto the study, so they'd only just started, JIDS removed any lower age bracket at all. So they moved to the stage of puberty, not age. So that was what we call Tanner stage two, which is very early puberty. Could be, particularly in girls, sort of nine or ten. Those young people henceforth would not be part of a research study. And as we discovered, they weren't monitored and followed up. And we don't really know how they fared from that point onwards. Yeah, and that comes across, as you say, at the very beginning of the book, um, I'm actually going to read a paragraph, which I think is, is kind of crucial to understanding. You write that this is not a story which denies trans identities, nor that argues trans people deserve to lead anything other than happy lives, free of harassment with access to good healthcare. This is a story about the underlying safety of an NHS service, the adequacy of the care it provides, and its use of poorly evidenced treatments on some of the most vulnerable young people in society, and how so many people sat back, watched and did nothing. I mean, there's a great deal to get into about why this happened. One thing I found striking is that JIDS had this quite strange bureaucratic status where it's part of the Tavistock and Portman, but it's commissioned by NHS England directly. I mean, is that part of the reason that it was able to operate in something of a sort of silo and maybe not avoid accountability, but it seems there's a kind of aura around this service and about what it was doing, which insulated it somewhat. It definitely had a sort of a unique status and, and setup. And certainly some have commented that because it was directly commissioned by NHS England, the leaders of JIDS didn't feel accountable to the Tavistock and Portman. Now, I don't know what they would say about that, but certainly several people have relayed that the leaders of JIDS felt that their bosses, if you like, were NHS England. And what we do know is that certainly NHS England did not monitor JIDS as closely as they should have, and nor did the Tavistock. And that is a conclusion that has been borne out by Dr. Hilary Cass's interim review into gender identity services for children. She said, you know, this is, it hasn't been subject to the level of oversight that we would expect of a service providing innovative treatments. It's interesting because really ever since JIDS moved to the Tavistock and Portman in 1994, it really has always been a bit of an outsider, partly because Even at that stage, although you had to be 16 and the numbers were small, it provided drugs, essentially. And the Tavistock generally doesn't do that. Other people in the trust didn't really feel that JIDS fitted in. And certainly it began as part of the Portman Clinic. And really, they didn't really want them there. And they were kind of forced out. And I think as time went on, this sort of siege mentality, people who worked in the service told me this, this siege mentality just grew and it felt sadly, wrongly, that everybody was against them and no one understood what they were trying to do. And actually, there were very experienced clinicians outside of JITS within the trust who who wanted to help and had expertise that could help. For whatever reason, they were always sort of separate. I mean, you gave a very thorough account of the development of JITS. But what another thing that's really slightly shocking is the sheer number of times that people... So we have, I think, in 2005... The Taylor Review, 
And then in 2018, Bell Review, and then a report in 2019 by Dinesh Sinha, and then the Castle Review, which is the one that probably most people will have heard of. I mean, how is it that a service of this type, clinicians are raising these concerns, and yet it just kind of gets swept under the carpet or ignored? And Well, I think the question of, of how and why are the most difficult questions to answer. But I think, as you've said, there were a number of opportunities to pause and to change direction and clinicians would argue to make the service better. I mean, going back to David Taylor's report, which he completed in 2005, published January 2006, he called for a thorough audit. He called for follow-up of patients. He called for a better understanding of how those young people on puberty blockers were using that time. Really, was it time to think? We, mm. we didn't really know. He called for support for clinicians to be able to say no if they didn't feel it was appropriate for a young person to go forward for these. Really, none of those recommendations were followed up. Now, it's interesting talking to Dr. Taylor. We spoke to him for Newsnight and I spoke to him again for the book and he said, I knew those were the right things and I knew they'd never be followed. It's difficult to know why. And he hints at it in his report, in fact. He says some of these will not be popular with the young people and the families that the service is there to help, but actually they're to their benefit. It's expensive to do research and it's time consuming. But what he was saying is if we are going to do this, we need to be the best in the world and we need to do the research. And it didn't happen. It's difficult to know why. I mean, again, in 2015, a much smaller report, and it was internal only, and it would seem that the wider Tavistock did not know about it at the time. But a consultant went in and said, you need to pause referrals because you can't cope at the moment. You need to pause, not close the service, but decide on some referral criteria because you're not managing. Capacity demanded outstrip capacity to cope and provide a good service. Again, Dr. Anna Hutchinson, who read that report at the time, part of the senior team, said that was really strongly considered for a moment. There was an opportunity there to create a much better service for these young people, and it wasn't taken. It would have been difficult. And there is an argument, and I totally understand it, that if you pause, then you're leaving these young people in limbo and without any help for a period of time. And no one wanted to do that. And I think it's really important to stress that the clinicians working in the service wanted to help this group of young people. If what you could offer wasn't the safest and the best you could, and by pausing, you could change direction and actually shape the whole debate going forward, then, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain is what some would say. I don't know if this adequately explains why there were so many missed opportunities, but Clinicians have said, you know, the word gender here just muddied the waters. One clinician describes it as sort of a cloak of mystery. And it was like the normal rules of clinical practice just didn't apply. So, you know, concerns that were raised, those were clinical concerns. They weren't concerns about trans people or their right to transition. All these clinicians who were concerned, they supported young people to transition. And they saw that some thrived, but they saw that many weren't and that they needed a different pathway. And all they were saying is raising the same clinical concerns that they would in their previous workplaces. Because the word gender was involved in this service, it it muddied the waters. And and perhaps that explains why the media weren't looking at this very closely for a long time. The politicians weren't looking at it closely. David Bell's report, she said 2018, it's five years ago. That was leaked. It's in the public domain. 
not the whole thing. The regulators went in after Newsnight revealed the very serious concerns that people had raised during the review. I don't think people need to read between the lines too much to understand why people treat this issue with a degree of caution. Because, and it comes up in your book, some of the clinicians you interview say that they could just be accused of being transphobic by other clinicians. And one of the big concerns is how random the approach seems to be. You describe it, or I think someone you interviewed describes it as kind of a lottery. Depending on which clinician you get, you could be put on a quite a different pathway in a way that could be to do with their sort of ideological commitment as much as a clinical concern. There was absolutely a clinician lottery, if you like. And depending which clinician or pair of clinicians often a young person and their family were assigned to, you could get a very different experience. So as the CQC found, there are assessments that could be two sessions long before a referral to endocrinology was made. You know, there are named people on the record in the book saying there were two session assessments, or there could be 30 appointments before an assessment was concluded. Now, one is potentially a month, <laughs> and the other is clearly years. And it, that's a completely different experience. And I think one of the messages of the book is that actually, even amongst frontline clinicians working in this field, there really isn't consensus about how best to care for this group of young people who are very different in their needs. There isn't agreement on what is being treated. And I know that in the very loosest possible sense, so not to pathologise. For example, you have clinicians who may feel that being trans is something innate that a young person might be born with. You have other clinicians who say that might be true for some, but there also seems to be some young people for whom their gender dysphoria or gender distress seems to be perhaps as a consequence of something else. Is gender dysphoria a sign of being trans? Well, some people would say yes. Some people say sometimes. Some people would say not always. And so depending on how you conceptualise it as a clinician, obviously that has a massive impact on, on how you then care for that young person. If you think it's innate, then of course your response would be, of course, I'll help you to medically transition if that's what you want, you know, quickly, because that will stop your body developing in the way that is causing you distress. And further down the line, you can masculinize or feminize as one wishes. There is no agreement on what was being treated, how to treat it, what a good outcome might be, how you measure it. And that's why you had this complete clinician's lottery. I mean, one of the things I found most striking was Kirsty Entwistle's experience, who was a clinician who worked at the Leeds JIDS site. Now, she had a fundamental disagreement with a particular colleague about a couple of cases that they worked on. And she felt that this colleague was too quick to offer puberty blockers. Now, the service leads, the head of the service in Leeds, the solution that was offered was to essentially separate Dr. Entwistle from the other clinician. And they would not work again together on any case. And one of them got one of these cases and one got the other. Now, a mutual colleague said, well, that was the only way of dealing with it because they were so incompatible, their approaches, that that was the only sensible option. And that just is quite extraordinary because what are the implications for that for young people and for the service as a whole? I mean, obviously, people practice differently. Journalists practice differently. But if you're fundamentally so different that you cannot work together, your approaches are so incompatible, I think that's a really striking a feature of a clinical service. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's easy when you read the kind of paper reporting and things about to get a kind of brief bullet point analysis of what went wrong and to assume that it's all because of mermaids or it's got ideology gone mad and all this kind of thing. And there are elements of that in the book. But what I think really comes across is that this is just a kind of bureaucratic nightmare as much as anything else and just a failure to deal with caseload. So when you talk about the number of appointments being reduced, is that primarily just because they had so many people coming through the door. You talk about doctors having 100 cases, Mm. that the only way to see them is to expedite the process in a way that ended up being unsafe. I think that's part of it. I think there was absolutely pressure put on clinicians to see people quickly to try and get through the numbers that were being referred. And several clinicians talked about that, that there would be pressure to refer for endocrinology quickly because... Once a young person was on the puberty blockers, actually the appointments that they had reduced, they became less frequent and you saw them less often. Not everyone felt that pressure, but many people did. For some, it was explicit and they, from seniors to sort of hurry up and get through and process people. And with others, it was sort of implicit that they knew that the service was struggling and that referrals had absolutely shot up. I don't think, as one of the clinicians says, I put in the conclusion, I don't think the numbers alone can explain it all. And like you say, there were so many factors, just like pressure from mermaids doesn't explain it all. And, you know, nothing does really. It's this amalgamation. Of, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the fact I think that's often overlooked actually in the last couple of months I've been speaking to people is that the trust itself was weak. It couldn't support this very important service, it didn't respond well to clinicians raising concerns. So there were so many factors here. And NHS England not stepping in as well. It struck me when I was preparing for this interview, I made a bullet point of all the reasons things went wrong. And I think I got to about 10 different things, starting with, so inadequate child and mental health service. Absolutely. People get kind of, well, they would just be sent to kids the moment the word gender 
came up. Yeah, and that was a they massive had lots problem. Of, um, what they call comorbidities, yeah. which is I always used to think was fatal, but it means just any disease, right? Any medical condition is a comorbidity, and a lot of the patients or young people would have three or four different things going on, like you mentioned before. In terms of that defensiveness or you know unwillingness to take on criticism, how did you find it personally trying to get hold of people to talk to for the book? Because clearly a lot of people would go on the record, but it is quite noticeable that the CEO of the Trust, the director of JIDS, Polly Carmichael, who is still the director, I believe, they wouldn't talk to you or they'd just send you emails or stuff. I mean, is that just because their NHS people generally don't like talking to journalists or how did you find the kind of process of gathering information? I think JIDS and the Tavistock are very defensive and there are several other journalists from other organisations who have made that point publicly that any questions asked are not really well received. And I think in Tortoise's podcast, which came out at the end of last year, Polly Curtis, who presented that, made the point that the trust wouldn't participate in anything where any critics were involved. That is their approach. I mean, that's what other journalists have said. And um, they are very defensive. And as clinicians told me, that, that was sort of the policy that came from the communications team. You know, in a way, it's understandable. I wasn't surprised that the chief executive didn't talk to me or that Polly Carmichael didn't talk to me because they had never spoken to us for Newsnight when, you know, we did four films over the space of 18 months or so. And every single time we obviously invited them on and, and, and they declined. We did have someone from the adult service come on when we were talking about detransitioning, but no one from JIDS ever agreed to talk to us. So I, I wasn't surprised. Obviously, I would have loved to have talked to them. And I've done my very best to reflect their views as have been in the public domain. That comes across very strongly in the book. It's full of, you know, footnotes saying, I did put this question to Paul Jenkins and he denies this or he... Yeah. I don't know if you agree with this, but I found that a lot of the language they use seemed deliberately obfuscatory or kind of both in terms of the kind of stuff they said directly to you and in the responses to the report. So there was a response... In 2019, I think, this is the senior review, it's an internal one, and it says something like, there are no immediate issues. I feel like them putting the word immediate in there was a kind of like get-out clause. When the report that he's referring to raised all sorts of very obvious problems with the service. It did, and, and I also think that that statement which said no immediate patient safety or safeguarding concerns, I mean, I think that that conclusion is questionable and from the evidence that I present in the book and some of which we broadcast on Newsnight because some of those concerns raised by a really sizable minority of clinicians, frontline clinicians, were very serious and they did exactly that. They did raise very important safeguarding concerns and they actually questioned the underlying approach of the service. Now, if that's not immediate, then I'm not really quite sure what is, but... Yeah, the evidence calls into question some of those statements. I also think that the statement that is constantly issued, which is each and every young person seen by JIDS has an individually catered assessment that works to their individual needs. I find it really, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. This book is full of clinicians and young people who say, that didn't happen to me. Right. And I think it is so rare for us as human beings to admit that we make mistakes. It's incredibly difficult. And I think when someone can put their name to the fact that they haven't always done professional work that they're proud of and say, I did some terrible assessments, actually. Yeah. We did collectively as a service. 
and put their name to it. And you have young people saying, my assessment was pretty rubbish, actually. They didn't ask me about this, this and this. I think it's quite difficult to maintain the line that every single person received a thorough and individualised assessment. It's really sort of sad, actually, reading clinicians just saying they think they did a bad job at certain points in their own career. Because what also comes across, again, if you just read the papers, and it's such a polarised and sort of toxic debate, you can get this idea that it's just a bunch of ideologues. But almost everyone involved comes across as well-meaning and kind of compassionate. And they genuinely think they're doing the best for very distressed, often very, very young people. In terms of the kind of brass tacks, the nuts and bolts of running a clinic, Another thing that comes across very strongly is that the record keeping is close to non-existent, which actually kind of made your job more difficult in a way. It's like, well, they just don't seem to have any kind of handle on who's been given what drugs and what the effects have been, notwithstanding that study that you mentioned, which started in 2011 and only concluded in 2021. So my question is, A, why did that study take 10 years? Is that part and parcel of a longitudinal, of that kind of work? And B, why was the record keeping so shoddy? So on the study, the reason it was delayed for so long, Jid say, is because they needed to wait until every one of those 44 young people had reached the age at which they could make a decision on whether they went on to cross-sex hormones or gender-affirming hormones, depending on what terminology you want to use. So some of those young people would have been 12. Not many of them were, actually. You couldn't decide whether you went on to hormones until 16. So say you joined the study right at the end in 2014, you were 12, potentially, you know, it'd be 2018 until you could make that decision. Now, why it then took another three years to publish it, I don't know. And what that showed was that 43 of the 44 did choose to go on to cross-sex hormones. And it also showed that they didn't replicate the findings of the Dutch study. And there was no, when using quantitative measures, no psychological benefit to being on the blocker. It was presented as in a positive light that, but self-reported, when you looked at self-reported satisfaction, the majority had increases in mood, the majority being 49%. So not an overall majority. But actually, when you look at the data for those who've been on the blocker for a bit longer, over a year, it's really, even with those subjective measures, those qualitative ones, really not that convincing at all. It's about equal proportions of those young people who said that there have been improvements to their mood with those young people who said their mood had actually been mm. impacted negatively. So it really... It's about a third of each, right? Yeah, so, so it really was not a strong study supporting the benefits of puberty blocking if, as they had originally set out to show it decreased gender dysphoria and increased mental health because it did neither. And that's notwithstanding all the physical effects. Yeah. But on bone density, which can lead to osteoporosis. With the introduction of hormones again, whether that's one's natural hormones by the body or synthetic hormones, bone density does start increasing again. But what we don't know yet is whether a young person who's had their puberty blocked and then either stops the blocker or goes on to synthetic hormones, we don't know whether they'll reach what they would have had they not been blocked. So that data is not there yet. So why it took so long, don't know, really. And the High Court asked for that data prior to publication because they had it, but JIS didn't supply it. The question more generally about the record keeping, it's something that really stood out for me during the process of researching and writing the book. 
it's something that really surprised clinicians working in the service as well, because JIDS did have and does have a research team. Data were and are being collected, but it appears that not in a particularly useful way. Because again, when the High Court asked for data, JIDS was not able to say how many young people they had referred for puberty blockers, the sex breakdown, the age breakdown, how many of those perhaps had an autism diagnosis. They couldn't provide any of that data or the proportion of those who still under JIDS's care went on to cross sex hormones, apart from one year's worth of data. Given the lack of knowledge about the impact of the blocker long term, that is quite extraordinary that they couldn't supply that data. Now, clinicians tell me the data are there. They're in those patient reports. They haven't been collated in a useful way for whatever reason. And similarly, you know, you mentioned comorbidities. Well, we don't know what proportion have maybe depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. We don't know that. That work was started in 2000 with the first audit of JIDS service users with the intention being that that would continue. And as we've already mentioned, David Taylor said, we can find out this missing information if you audit your patients. And it would have been doable. And they didn't. You know, as I've put in the book, when people said, well, can't we do it retrospectively? This is really important that we know about the young people we're trying to help. If we don't know enough about them and how they're faring on this intervention, how can we improve things? The response was, Yes, it's regrettable in hindsight, but it wouldn't be possible without, quote, disproportionate effort. Yeah. Just to come back to the young people that we're talking about here, the way that they, let's say, presented to clinicians, is that some of the families seem to be quite virulently homophobic and that that influenced the way that they approached this thing. How big an issue do you think that is? Because I think at one point someone says it's only a small minority. Is it just a few or is this something that should concern us? So I think I want to stress that it was not the case that the majority of families were homophobic at all. It was a small number that would make homophobic comments and it was clear that that might be impacting the way a young person identified. However, the broader issue of homophobia was much, much bigger. And that manifested itself in so many different ways, whether that might be a comment from a family, but the young people themselves often made homophobic comments. And many of them had had same-sex relationships or were same-sex attracted and did not want to be and expressed disgust about that. I mean, Anastasis Spiliadis, one of the clinicians, says, you know, particularly the females would say, oh, if I hear the word lesbian one more time, I'm going to be sick. There was real disgust. And some clinicians came to see that the inadequate, what they saw as the inadequate exploration of sexuality with young people, actually meant that in a way, the service itself was homophobic. The way that gay clinicians were treated, they argued, and Jids would deny this, they said was homophobic. So I think, and certainly in the transcripts that I have seen of interviews that formed part of the Jids review, it is, so many clinicians mention it. I really don't want to imply that the majority of families were homophobic. Absolutely not. The majority of families want what's best for their children. And there is nothing worse as a parent than seeing your child in enormous distress. Obviously, I would encourage our listeners to read the book anyway, but the case studies of the young people are extremely affecting. 
in that sense. You, you really get a sense of just how different their lives are as well and how multifaceted this is and kind of torturous it can be. But the different outcomes as well. Yeah. And this was really what those clinicians were saying, that transition will obviously work for some people. And in all the data, poor as all the studies are, there has always been, in any group of children with gender-related distress, some have always grown up to be trans adults. No one is questioning that or was questioning that, but many didn't. And what those clinicians were saying was that JITS was geared up to help those for whom it would work, and it really yeah. wasn't helping those for whom it wouldn't. And, and the book tells the stories of those for whom it has definitely worked, and really for those it's harmed as well. Yeah, I think it's very even-handed. I, yeah, and you say towards the end of the book that there's sort of two groups and... Jids only focused on one of them, i.e. the ones they thought would go on to be trans adults. Just to kind of finish off a couple of questions. First is, how have you found, since the book came out, how have you found the reception to it? It was a huge struggle to get it published. I think you had more than 20 publishers you went to who declined it. I mean, did any of them give proper reasons to you? Or did any of them just dismiss it out of hand? Or how, how was that? Well, it was a bit demoralising, obviously, yeah. um, at, at the beginning. I mean, I was quite surprised. I mean, that probably sounds quite Because you've already done the news Yeah, stuff, exactly, and, exactly. Like... And, you know, it had been well-received and it was calm and evidence-based. Yes, I hadn't actually quite realised how high the number was until recently, and I was asking my agent to look through it because of the coverage. But, yeah, it was so Swift Press, who I'm delighted to say offered and have published it, were the 23rd. And of the 22 others... My agent only got responses from 12, which I'm told is very, very rare. So usually you'd expect a response to a proposal from like 90%. And no one was negative. That was what was so interesting. And that was actually what made it more demoralising because it's like, oh, come on, you know. And there were a variety of reasons. One was, you know, other authors that they published wouldn't like it or would be sensitive to it. One was that it was too controversial Another sort of hinted at junior staff not being very happy. And, and as I say, lots of people didn't reply at all. No one can only guess at why. But in terms of the first part of your question, I mean, I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the response in every sense. It's been very strange for me to be doing so many interviews and to Because normally you're on the be other so side exposed. of the yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I do do reporting as well. I have done in, in the past quite a bit, but I'm not used to answering the questions. I'm used to asking them. But I've been overwhelmed by the positive way in which it's been received. You know, I think when you have positive reviews and, and coverage in The Guardian, The Observer, The New Statesman, The FT, and The Mail on Sunday, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, you know, I think it really speaks to the fact that this is not a book about ideology or that questions trans people. It's a book about healthcare. And I'm absolutely delighted that that is the way in which it's been received and that actually it has been the first time that public service broadcasters in Australia and the States have actually had this conversation with me, but it's the first time that they've held it about whether, you know, there are questions here about the evidence base and about whether a one-size-fits-all approach is appropriate to this group of young people. I've been absolutely delighted by the response and it's Sunday Times bestseller and fantastic. In terms of the, the future of JIDS, there are going to be a group of regional centres now, which hopefully can address some of those issues that we discussed in terms of JIDS was basically the only place that you could go and that created lots of problems. At the very end of the book, you say, we don't really know how many kind of detransitioners. Kira Bell is the most famous. She's been in the newspapers and 
had a court case having detransitioned. Do you have any sense from talking to clinicians, from the data you have looked at and so on, of what proportion we may be talking about in terms of the numbers of people who may yet to come forward? And is that a speculation too far? Or because it strikes me that we are nowhere near the end of this. Well, the honest answer is no, we don't know. And I'm not sure we ever will. The old studies that look at this, which some cite as saying, look, regret and detransition are very, very small. It's a 1% or maybe 2%. They're all methodologically flawed. You know, some apply to really only male born. A lot of them are old and apply don't really apply to the cohort of young people that have gone through gender clinics in the last 10 years. Many didn't take puberty blockers. They perceived this big shift in adolescent females. You know, some look at surgical regret only, but lots of people transition and don't have surgery. They might just take hormones or they, well, they might not. But recent studies suggest a higher proportion detransition. But again, you know, they have flaws as well. And it's really important to acknowledge that. Interesting, you mentioned Kira Bell because she has said recently that actually the label is kind of unhelpful. Because how do we measure these things? You know, I've spoken to people who've been through JIDS who are very unhappy. They have fully surgically transitioned. They wish they hadn't, but they can't detransition because their entire bodies and hormonal systems have been changed. Even if they know that they're their natal sex, but they don't appear to be to anybody else. So how could you change that? You know, so we don't know. And I'm not sure we ever will, because how could one measure it accurately? I mean, obviously, some of the studies which look at only people in a gender clinic, there are just so many obvious flaws to that, because why would you be at the gender clinic if you're unhappy and you're actually really quite angry with the people that have helped you transition? So I don't think we'll know. And I think this is why... You know, some people have been quite cross with me that the way I've written the book is I'm presenting the evidence in the fairest and most comprehensive way I possibly can. I don't think it's the job of journalists generally to tell people what to think. And the reason why I do not say this is a scandal is because we don't know. What we do know is that some people have been helped at this point in time and some people have been harmed. And we just don't know the numbers either way. So until we do have a better grasp on that. And hopefully Dr. Hilary Cass will get some better data that no one else has been able to access yet. Then we might start to get a better grasp. But also like it takes time for people to process the changes they've been through. And some of those will be really happy with them. And I suspect that some won't be. TBC. But yeah, 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 time will tell, which is the most awful way to end. But we don't know yet. We don't well, know. Hannah, I mean, what I, I can certainly say is it is an extremely compelling The word shocking is overused, but it really is shocking at times, meticulous and very kind of fluently written. And I would strongly encourage anyone listening who's interested in these issues to buy the book and give it a read and draw your own conclusions. Because as you say, you don't try and kind of foist your own views on it at all. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Time to Think, Hannah's book is out now, available from all good bookshops, although I think there have been some problems with Waterstones. Um, There have been, but it is there now. Okay, it is now in Waterstones. And from independent shops in Amazon. Yeah. Thank you all at home, as ever, for listening. Do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.